Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from Hebrew College's Shulman Graduate School of Jewish Education. In their master's degree program, learn to engage diverse Jewish communities and develop expertise to address pressing contemporary issues. The program can be completed online from anywhere in the world or on campus just outside of Boston. Generous scholarships are available. Learn more and prepare for Passover by downloading the article The Four Neurodivergent Children by Rachel Figueroa-Smith at www.hebrewcollege.edu unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 163, Collective Effervescence. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And before we introduce this week's guest, we want to share something really exciting with you. If you're listening to this podcast the week it comes out, you may be listening to the one millionth download of Judaism Unbound. We expect to reach our one millionth download this week. It could very well be from this episode. It could also be from one of our many other episodes that people are listening to. You won't know and we won't know. So we think that everybody listening to this episode should imagine themselves to be the one millionth person listening to Judaism Unbound in the three years that we've been around. It's really an incredible thing. It's a number that it's really hard for us to imagine, to believe. It's certainly not a number that we imagined that we would reach anytime soon when we launched the podcast three years ago. So thank you so much. We'll report back next week on whether or not we actually did reach the 1 million mark, and we'll talk about what we have in store going forward. Today's guest is appropriate for our millionth download because she's one of my oldest friends in the business, so to speak. Lizzie Heidemann is the founding rabbi of Mishkan Chicago, which is one of the organizations known in the Jewish world these days as an emergent spiritual community. They describe themselves in the following way. Mishkan is a spiritual community in Chicago, reclaiming Judaism's inspiration and transformative essence. Not bound by a particular location, we really like that language, They meet for soulful musical prayer, learning, and holidays in synagogues, homes, event venues, and other religiously unconventional spaces all around the city, bringing spirit, song, and celebration to places without a Jewish institutional presence. Lizzie Heidemann has rabbinic ordination from the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles, California. Just out of rabbinical school, she started as the first rabbinic fellow at Ikar, one of the oldest emergent spiritual Jewish communities in America, which is actually not that old. And she has won a variety of awards for her work as a Jewish leader and educator. She received the Pomegranate Prize from the Covenant Foundation for Promising Early Career Educators. She was a winner of the Lippmann Kampfer Fellowship in Applied Jewish Wisdom. And in addition to her work founding Mishkan, she also sits on the boards or as an advisor for a number of other really important Jewish organizations in the realm of social justice. She is a board member of Terua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, and she is a member of the Rabbinic Cabinet of Avodah, the Jewish Service Corps. This is a conversation that we probably should have had a long time ago. And so finally, here we are. It's our one millionth download time, and we're super excited to have it be a conversation with Lizzie Heidemann. Lizzie Heidemann, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. So nice to be here. In a way, Mishkan, your organization, occupies this middle Uh, space in the time of Jewish innovation. You know, there was this wave of Jewish innovation early on about 15 years ago, and organizations like Ikar and Hadar were part of that. And then there's all these kind of new things that happened, you know, last month. And it's funny to think about the fact that 
Mishkan is already one of the middle ones. But I was wondering if we could talk about what Mishkan is and has become sort of on two time horizons. If you could talk a little bit about what your vision of Mishkan was, what you thought it was all about seven years ago or whenever it was exactly that, that you started, and then talk a little bit about some of the surprises along the way, some of the ways that Mishkan has evolved and what is Mishkan today in comparison to what you thought it was going to be? When Mishkan started, I think I mostly was hoping that it would be a place for me personally to pray. Um, And then beyond that, I think I was hoping for it to be a place for any and all people who have felt the feeling of, I'm a spiritual person, I connect to God or my my own conception of God, the life force, something greater than myself, I connect to that profoundly in places, but just generally not synagogue. And wouldn't it be amazing to create a Jewish prayer space that enabled people to have that kind of expansive connection um, with each other, with themselves, with, you know, whatever you want to call God. Um, And in particular, to speak to people who have not found synagogue to be a welcoming spiritual environment for whatever reason. And so coming from the vantage point as I was at the time of being like early thirties, single, uh, progressive, looking for social community and also spiritual community. um, I kind of looked around the landscape in Chicago and felt like there's not really a place for me or people like me. There are Jewish engagement organizations who cater to, you know, sort of building the social community part, but they don't really deal with the spirit. Um, And then there are places that at least are supposed to deal with the spirit. Those are synagogues, um, but didn't really have the sort of robust community of young people that I felt like I really wanted to be with. And not just young people, like think of all of the people who have been or felt on the outside of or alienated by Jewish communities. So whether that's LGBTQI people, people in interfaith relationships, Jews of color, I wanted a place that felt diverse and that felt joyful and also that felt like serious Judaism. Um, So not just an engagement project, but also a spiritual community. And where we started was mostly prayer services and then the scaffolding to make access to prayer services possible for people, especially people who felt like, hey, the reason why I feel alienated from Jewish prayer space is because I don't know Hebrew or I don't know these tunes or you know, the, the structure of Jewish prayer feels too rigid to me. And to try to create classes and opportunities to demystify th- that kind of stuff and having services in people's living rooms. And then we actually started um, partnering with Anshe Amit Synagogue, synagogue in Chicago on the north side, um, where Rabbi Michael Siegel was very encouraging of seeing something like Mishkan be successful and succeed in attracting the kinds of people that, that we were hoping to bring in. And so, you know, over the years, over the past seven years, I think people would, people refer to us as their shul, you know? Um, but I'm always really careful about verbiage that leads you to draw conclusions about the thing that are not actually representative of the thing. So we call ourselves a spiritual community. 
So I'm really curious, and I'm always very curious about your name. Um, I, I, I'm just fascinated with what institutions call themselves. And I'm curious along a few different angles. A, so you mentioned briefly in what you were just talking about that Hebrew is alienating for some people. And that's a real thing. And you chose despite that, or maybe in spite of that, or I don't know, to choose a name that is Hebrew, Mishkan. Um, although I guess Chicago is... Maybe it's Hebrew and English and a Native American language originally. So that's one piece. And also, I'm flashing back to recent Torah portions a little while back in the calendar year when we were looking at this structure called the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And here you are talking about how you actually don't have your own building. You, you rent a building. I could be confused or I could be excited and want to, want to learn what is lurking there and what you're getting at with this idea of a mishkan, of a, of a structure in a sense that's not literally housed in one building. So what is, what's the deal with uh, Mishkan Chicago of all names? People frequently ask, but what does Mishkan mean? Is it an acronym for something? And then I, I get to explain, it's the traveling sanctuary in the desert that this ragtag bunch of Israelites and non-Israelites who had just left Egypt and were like wandering in the desert searching for water and searching for meaning and searching for God, it is what they built together to find all of those things, you know? And, and that's really how I see what we are doing here, you know? Um, it's, it's really not about the building, even when the character of God in the Torah says to the people, I want you to build me this structure, the, the holiness isn't in the structure, the holiness is in the people. I wanted like a, an easy to pronounce name that, that you couldn't like bungle reading it in English. So like you could say Mishkan, you could say Mishkan, you could say Mishkan, um, but you're not going to like bungle a C-H guttural or a, you know, an apostrophe <laughs> with, you know, multiple gutturals and a silent ayin or something. So Mishkan seemed like an easy to pronounce word when you transliterate it back into English. But then when you understand sort of what it represents in the Torah, it's this, it's a building project, but it's, it's really a project in community building more than building building. And people brought all different manner of expertise and background and vision to the project. And it's very, the, the Torah's unusually specific about, you know, the men and the women and these people who, you know, had this particular job and these people who carried the poles and then, you know, the poles that go into the rings. And um, so there's a level of specificity that I think is absolutely not really descriptive of what we do because it's, this is much more, I would say, experimental than following any kind of a blueprint. But the blueprint in the Torah describes all of these people really just bringing from a place of love and inspiration as opposed to a sense of guilt and obligation, people are showing up less and less out of a sense of guilt and obligation. Um, and so we didn't want the name of the shul to be anything other than an inspired voluntary experience. And then why Hebrew, you know, at the same time as Mishkan was getting started, my friend and teacher, Rabbi Noah Kushner, who I think, have you had her on the show? Yeah. So she was building the kitchen. And I think for many very good reasons, they chose a word that, you know, it's an English word and where's the place in the house that everybody wants to be and where does the experimentation and the mixing happen? And, you know, I, like, I love that. I think that made a lot of sense um, for her and for her community. Um, 
and the description of Mishkan as like a traveling sort of sanctuary that people create for themselves, that was, that was actually part of the vision. It wasn't just like a cute name. It was actually part of the vision. So I'm curious, first of all, as you describe the story that a big driver of your name was for it to be able to be pronounced, but it turns out that for the organization that you've built, it's so right, both in the sense of it's being traveling and not having its own building, but but more profoundly, I think, what, what you talked about in terms of um, a community that is the creation of of all of its members, you know, and all the gifts that they bring. And and that's very much how the Mishkan in the wilderness was built, unlike the temple, for example, which is a building that has to stand the test of time and only expert masons can work on that, you know. And, and so it's interesting to sort of think about if that wasn't a, a major driver at the beginning, you know, how your name sort of defines who you become over time and whether there have been other things that, that have happened over the years that, that have also defined Mishkan that, that actually turn out to be quite connected to the Mishkan. The longer Mishkan exists, the more I think the name feels appropriate. You know, at the beginning, I think I was imagining the Mishkan as sort of like the way that maybe Moses experienced it, which is, you know, all the people create this space. And then, you know, as a leader, I'm able to um, coalesce all of that and like really feel the radiance and power of God in the space with all the people. Um, and we've seen Mishkan grow from like, a, you know, 65 people in a living room to like 1800 people filling the Vic Theater, which is this big concert venue on the north side for high holidays with like, you know, stage and lighting and branding, you know, like things that I would have never thought about, things that I never went to school for, to think about how to create powerful spiritual space. And like, that's all sort of embedded in the name of the Mishkan. Like you have to think on the level of specificity and granularity that actually the Torah is describing when it talks about sticking tents and poles and poles into rings and rings into an ark and and all of that. But I think maybe the surprise for me has been those large group experiences where you feel moved and transformed and, you know, collective effervescence. That's great, but it actually doesn't translate into, I would say, like meaningful, sustained experience without much smaller, more intimate groups, minions of people. And that's where you get like the Levites and the Gershonites and, you know, people who did art and people who made textiles and, you know, all of the different sort of subgroups of, of people that helped build this Mishkan thing. And uh, that's what we're trying to focus on now. You know, I would say at the beginning, we did a lot of focusing on the, that like big collective effervescence experience thing. And now like the real challenge and the invitation for like building a Mishkan with staying power that really has the ability to traverse the desert in a way that holds people and takes care of them and brings people along with us is creating much more small, intimate experiences that help people connect to each other and Judaism um, in a much more face-to-face -face way with one another. You described the origin story of Mishkan as, as flowing from a situation where people who had various spiritual needs or interests and were unable to somehow access them through the institutions that were around. And you created a new organization, which may or may not be a new kind of synagogue. But what you did to name it 
And then also to think about how to talk about what it does, I think, is to reach back for images from the Bible. You know, so to reach back across that 2,000 years and to pull an image of the Mishkan from the Bible, but not only the image of the Mishkan, but also, you know, what you just talked about, collective effervescence and the idea, right, that people are looking for a sort of a spiritual experience that wasn't available to them. And what's interesting is that it connects to a conversation that we recently had with the author Ruby Namdar, who wrote a novel about that, that sort of anchored in the experience of the temple. And one of the things that Ruby Namdar talked about with us was that it remains a great tragedy that the Second Temple was destroyed. You know, that it's not just that, hey, we got something better. You know, we didn't really want those sacrifices anyway. But there was something really, really important that was lost in that transition, which which is a more intimate, a more personal, more powerful connection somehow with with the divine, with spirituality, and uh, that we've seen manifested in the past, perhaps with the development of Hasidism. But I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit about what you're seeing as the human need, the Jewish need that you feel like Mishkan is a response to, and sort of why that seems to involve a reach back across the millennia rather than some ability to kind of just build on rabbinic Judaism in a more straightforward fashion, let's say. When I read in Abraham Joshua Heschel's writing about how prayer has become polite and we sit there in our seats and we, you know, stand up, all rise and we sit down, you know, please be seated. And, you know, we're just sort of politely waiting for a prayer experience to be over. That felt very familiar to me. That felt very familiar, I know, to the experience of many people I knew. And I just thought like, but that, but that isn't how it has to feel. That isn't how it has to be. And... I think that visceral experience you're describing of going to a festival in the desert, which is sort of how I envision the original Mishkan, like almost the original Burning Man, that's a, a primal experience. And um, we've started looking for it in other places. I think a lot of people have started looking for it in other places, but I, I thought like that, but that could, be, that could be part of your synagogue experience um, if somebody gave you permission to do that. And so, you know, there are places you can go in the country and world where in Jewish prayer space, people get up and dance and clap and close their eyes and sway and sing and, you know, hold each other and cry and laugh and, you know, sit under their talus. And, and so I think part of the challenge is describing that kind of environment to a generation of people who have either never seen that or for whom that sounds like ridiculous or inappropriate or, but I, I could, what synagogue allows that? Um, you know, there's, there's somebody who loves coming to Mishkan and always sits in the front row and without fail, he wears a, like a suit, sometimes a three-piece suit. He's the only person in the room wearing a suit. He loves, you know, the music and the, the, the everything about it, you know, the, the environment, the community. And they're just, it, there's like this one little aspect of a conventional prayer space that he can't break himself of, which is, you know, the formality of wearing a suit. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's just having, being given the permission to have a visceral experience which so many of us guard ourselves from, like in life, in the world, or we only allow ourselves to have those moments of profound emotional opening, like in therapy. And, you know, religion's supposed to be a place where that's possible. So part of the project is helping people reimagine what Jewish prayer space can feel like, and then 
creating a place where people can feel that feeling. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your approach further um, on a couple of axes. One is with respect to some of the folks that you've, I think, hinted at, alluded to, who don't have a ton of background knowledge with respect to Judaism, didn't grow up knowing all sorts of Hebrew, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we talked a little bit about that before. I'm curious to hear more about your approach to those folks. And also, um, to the extent that it's relevant, you at one or two points mentioned folks who aren't Jewish who are part of Mishkan. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what it looks like for folks who aren't Jewish to play a role in the programming that you have and um, and see what we can learn from that. I'm a person who grew up in a, you know, a home with two Jewish parents who, by the way, like, barely knew anything about Judaism. I felt very insecure about my own, my own Jewish background and upbringing. Like I'm speaking from my experience as somebody who, you know, needs translation and needs transliteration and um, needs the service to be made more spiritually accessible in order to find it meaningful. But other people who have different insecurities need other things to be made at home and to be made comfortable. And so um, the more we know about people and, you know, their insecurities, their, their baggage and their gifts, you know, I mean, all of that's wrapped up in the same set of life experiences, um, the more we can create a community that's actually representative of and holds all those different kinds of people. By way of one example, in like 2013, a couple started to come to Mishkan that had just graduated from Northwestern. Um, he was Jewish, she was not. And I noticed on Facebook, they were doing a promotion for Obamacare. The two of them were speaking about how she, as an experienced designer, designs art and doesn't have health care. And, and I just thought to myself, like, that is so interesting. I want to know more about that job. Judaism needs an experienced designer. Our holidays and experiences are supposed to evoke certain kinds of feelings and, you know, thoughts and experiences collectively, individually. We need an experienced designer. And here's a person who is not Jewish coming to, you know, as an outsider who might really be able to shed light on how this, how this project could be manifest at Mishkan. So I called her up and I said, would you ever consider like doing something with Mishkan? And so we, we settled on a project where she helped us design a game out of the Passover Seder, out of the most boring section of the Passover Seder, the Magid section, which like in theory should be the most fun and interesting, but it's the part where everybody just sits around the table and reads, um, you know, and just like reads the Exodus story. And we turned it into a game. And this game over the course of a few years became like a 200 person community Seder experience um, that people fell in love with. She came from a completely different background, I think Episcopal maybe, um, from an arts and um, performance background and gave so much to the Jewish sort of prayer worship ritual experience. That's the goal in so many different kinds, you know, with so many different kinds of people and experiences. I guess what I'm curious about is seven years into this project, what have you determined, you know, that who who have you determined that Mishkan is for? And can you describe the yearnings of that population? And I don't mean like specifically, but, you know, what kind of people are you serving? Um, because 
ostensibly, right, when you start an organization and certainly when you're building an organization, you, you kind of realize, well, th th this is the population that we're serving. We have to find a common denominator. Otherwise, we can't sustain ourselves as an organization. So we have to do something that appeals to enough people that we can build an organization out of it. Um, but not so many people that we're all things tall people, which we can't be. So in a way, I'm asking three questions. Who is Mishkan for? Who is Mishkan kind of not for, really? Because you can't serve, right? certain kinds. And for the people that Mishkan is for, what what do you do now? You know, what are the pieces of Mishkan that you feel are like the 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 tent poles, so to speak, that are what makes Mishkan Mishkan? You know, there's the prayer service, but but what else are you doing and what else have you found that the specific community that you're serving is is being served by? I think who is Mishkan for? is still basically the same answer as it was in the beginning, which is anybody who really wants Jewish spirituality in a collective, powerful, transformational way. You know, I, I'll have different people come in and say like, oh, this is just like the renewal service I go to in Boulder. This is just like the reconstructionist service I go to wherever. Like, oh, this is actually quite like the conservative service that I go to in you know, Boca. Or, um, oh, you know, I was raised in an Orthodox upbringing, but like I recognized everything you were doing. So there's a, a kind of cross-denominational or post-denominational approach to the idea that we can all connect uh, to Judaism in this way. But um, if you were coming to Mishkan saying, you know what, look, prayer isn't really my thing. I don't know, Dan, if you can relate to that, for example. That was a joke because yeah, I, no, I've no, heard you I mean, say that, that, more is, times than I can count. <laughs> no, but that is why like, I don't actually come to Mishkan, no, you know, I know. even though I, I'm a huge fan, right? I know. Let's just put it all out there. Okay. <laughs> all right. So 100%. It, I think that for, I mean, like different strokes for different folks. Uh, who, who is it not for? If, if you're, you know, uncomfortable with somebody, you know, playing guitar in a service or playing drum in a service, you know, it's not, it, it can't be a one experience creating certain norms can't be all things to all people. It just can't be. Um, and I've certainly gotten requests from people, you know, if you were really radically inclusive, then, you know, you would have an area for men and women to sit separately because like, that's how I prefer to pray. And at a certain point I do have to say, you know, maybe this isn't the right community for you to pray in. Maybe there's something else you want to check out. And to the question, like what, you know, what makes, what makes the whole thing what it is. I mean, I think an organization is, is like a cell, you know, so, sort of, it, it's got different pieces that all function independently, but also together and is constantly sloughing off and kind of trying new things in order to stay vital. So we started doing one Friday night service a month and quickly grew to two Friday night services a month and then grew to two Friday night services and one Shabbat morning service and high holidays and started doing events for holidays all around the city, different kinds of venues, different kinds of experiences, depending on the holiday. The other things that we do that I think um, are what actually create the sense of community in a spiritual community include uh, kids and family spiritual education program called the Mensch Academy, training kids and families to think about Judaism as a place that is 
loving and builds character and values and morals and does that, you know, through text and ritual, but where text and ritual is not the product at the end of the day, it's the person <laughs> that's the product at the end of the day. Um, a couple years ago, we created Maggie's Place, which is a wellness center. The time in which we live is very isolating <laughs> and suicide is an epidemic and people are alone for a lot longer in their lives and spend a lot more time on social media feeling feelings of being left out and not unconnected. And so Maggie's Place is like a holistic wellness center whose purpose is to reduce the sense of alienation basically associated with being alive right now. Um, and then I guess the last thing is just general partnerships and minion building. And when I say minion, I mostly just mean smaller groups than like hundreds of people at a service, knowing that like real relationships and friendships get built in dialogue over learning in groups of people studying something together, learning together, support groups. And, you know, I think that's really part of what we're working on is the problem of loneliness and the problem of alienation and isolation. Um, and trying to create the kind of connectivity and sense of purpose that like keeps people feeling inspired. So I'm not sure exactly how to uh, ask this question and sort of think about it. I know you often don't like to uh, say anything bad about anybody, you know, and you like to talk about an abundance uh, mentality and everything. And, and I'm all for that. So let's try to do it that way. But I want to kind of ask you about the distinction between, let's say, rabbis and non-rabbis, and maybe it's rabbinical or organizations or denominations. I'm not sure exactly where the fault line is, but I've told this story before in the podcast where I was on a search committee on, for my synagogue, which you know I don't really go to very often, but it's conservative. And it was interesting to interview all these rabbis, and they were often caught up in various like personal status type of issues. Like, is the person Jewish? Is they, are they not Jewish? Can they uh, come to the Torah for a bar mitzvah? Can they marry a Jew? You know, all these kind of questions. And what was fascinating to me was that the members of the search committee, who themselves were conservative Jew, you know, members of conservative synagogues, they were so involved that they were appointed to the search committee for the rabbi, and they just couldn't wrap their minds around all this, these status kind of issues, right? They were just like, I just don't understand why the father of the bar mitzvah boy can't come to the Torah. It makes no sense to me. And they, you know, they would say things like to the rabbinical candidates, like, isn't that silly what you just said? Or isn't, it was really, they could not wrap their minds around it. And yet the rabbis were talking like this was the most obvious thing in the world. I mean, this was how they had been taught. And there's some rabbis who, you know, sort of end up describing the world that way. And there are some rabbis who don't. You know, there are some new rabbinical schools that maybe are less likely to be training rabbis to sort of think that way. But you could also make the case that that is how rabbis should think, right? I mean, I think that people who run the seminaries would make a strong case that, no, these these status questions are important. So I, I, I say all that as a preface to um, you're talking a little bit about your, your decision recently to cease your affiliation with the organization, the sort of umbrella organization of conservative rabbis. And it, and and you have a wonderful talk, which we'll link to on, in our show notes for folks who want to get into it more more deeply. But but you specifically made that decision because of a rule that the conservative uh, organization has in terms of uh, performing marriages between a, a Jew and, and somebody who's not Jewish, and that they don't allow that. And you got to a point where you felt that that you needed to do that. 
And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, about the marriage question for sure, but also more deeply about the role of rabbis vis-a-vis this new Judaism, this new bunch of Jews or travelers with the Jews. And, and how do we start to sort of think about the rabbinical role and the role of denominations or other kinds of Jewish organizations in, in trying to sort out, you know, what are all these folks going to end up doing? There is a line in Sidur Sim Shalom that is a quote from Pirkei Avot from a section of the Mishnah that says, be of the disciples of Aaron the Kohen, love peace and pursue peace, love people and bring them close to Torah, Mikarvan the Torah. So that's, that's kind of my personal barometer for making decisions. Um, when I chose to enter the conservative movement, the decision-making structure of having like a committee on law and Jewish standards that really understands halakha, Jewish law, deeply um, and precedent deeply and uh, is essentially working in that very murky space, you know, of tradition and change and um, adapting and growing and, um, and towing the line and, and holding certain things as, as sacrosanct and, you know, conserving. Um, and that for me personally, especially at the time I was applying to school, felt very important because as I mentioned, I did not grow up with tradition. So to be in an environment where um, tradition was protected we were taking care of something fragile and complicated. And as rabbis, it's our job to understand the complexity and then to, to go out into the world and teach Torah with a very firm foundation and all of that complexity and all of that halakha and to abide by a kind of commonly understood set of set of rules that guides how we how we adapt halakha and how we how we don't adapt halakha. You know, as a female-identified person um, and as a, a person who loved and, and ultimately was for a time in love with women, being in a movement that has the potential to adapt was very important, and I was living that. I knew this movement has flexibility built into it. I sort of figured that flexibility eventually would apply to other areas, um, and it became clear to me early on that the question of Jews marrying non-Jews was going to be part of my rabbinate if I wanted to work with a diverse, mostly you know, disconnected, unaffiliated audience. And I, I sort of figured like it would be a matter of a few years before that change was made at the bureaucratic you know, sort of system level in the conservative movement. And it just proved that that wasn't the case. And the movement is still working with the challenges of engaging couples and families while maintaining that a Jewish marriage is one between two Jews. And I just decided personally that wasn't going to be my, my battle anymore. And if that wasn't going to be my battle anymore, I couldn't really, with integrity, remain in the association that has that as one of its pillars. So I wish the conservative movement nothing but luck in its attempt to do what I believe it really wants to do, which is love people and bring them close to Torah. Uh, I think we have different, a different sense of, of method at this point. I think that there's been this unspoken theme of the episode of tradition and change, funny enough. Not, not, I mean, I don't know that we would use that 
framing. Um, but I mean, we started out by talking about the ancient and and the contemporary and how Mishkan has looked to blend those. And here we are looking at the idea of tradition and change and how different people have different perspectives on what that is. And um, I guess I'm curious on that front, given that we we have a sense of what certain people are looking to preserve, to, to lowercase c, conserve um, in the past. When you look out at the present of Judaism, when you think a little bit about the future of Judaism, on the one hand, what changes do you think are underway already? What do you think is happening that is likely to snowball and and continue in the future that we might not or we might not have fully anticipated? Um, and more than that, what what might not yet be happening? Like, what would you project Judaism looking like in in future generations that we're only just now starting to get a sense of that that might not yet exist? You're somebody who I know has really really important insights on the, on those fronts. My answer to the second part of the question is I have no idea. The answer to the question of what, what will everything look like in a few generations, people are often surprised to hear me speak rather pessimistically about the future, not about the Jewish future, but just about um, the kinds of conversations that we are obsessed with having in the Jewish community or, or any sort of specific identity community mostly because I think like we're going to be dealing with much bigger, scarier issues like climate change, like really the effects of climate change and like global breakdown. So do, do I have any idea what the future is going to look like? Not really, but I could imagine that the kinds of conversations about like who's in and who's out and who's a Jew and who's not are going to feel very silly to us. We are on the cusp, you know, there are a lot of cusps that I feel like we're sitting at the edge of, but one of them is like global catastrophe. <laughs> and um, so that being the case, I want to focus on what brings us joy and inspiration and motivation and a sense of com community and collective responsibility. And I think people are attracted to that and yearning for that and seeking that. And that's what Judaism is looking like more and more like now um, and shaping itself to reclaim all of the elements of the tradition that have historically lent themselves to a sense of collective responsibility and joy and inspiration. But just over the past maybe 100 years, who knows, 100, 150, I'm not a, I'm not a, a historian, but like along the way, we got muddled up and started placing our priorities on maybe the wrong things. So like the minion, you know, the, the idea of a minimum of 10 people who get together daily or weekly to do something, you know, connecting them to something larger in which like you are missed if you're not there. People know your name, people know who you are. Um, that, that seems to me a very powerful format for collective meaning making um, and community building. Now, historically, and in many communities today, those 10 people are men. But, you know, as long as we're creating an egalitarian, visionary community of the future, these are 10 people. These are 10 people, and, and they're Jews and they're non-Jews, um, but they're gathering together for a purpose. And you know, at Mishkan, our, our project right now is figuring out how to create a constellation of those minyanim, small groups, um, people who are basically on, on some kind of personal journey, but that's not just personal, that, takes, that allows them to take themselves and be part of something bigger than themselves to actually transform the larger community. Um, that's what it's looking like here. Um, I think maybe that's happening on, you know, uh, over the greater landscape. 
but that would be like your job to describe more than mine. And you probably are more familiar with all of those different projects. So, you know, I think as long as we have these spaces for, for that feeling of collective connectivity and effervescence, that's also um, enabling people to find those smaller nodes of, of meaning making and community building. So like, that's a really good recipe for engagement and for building and growing the Jewish community. I mean, my question in a way is, is once you um, adopt a small groups type strategy, a minion type strategy that, you know, why can't you be all things to all people at that point? Mm. You know, like that, that's sort of something that, you know, you don't have to have an answer to this, but I'm puzzling over it, which is that I'm obsessed with the idea, you know, reaching back uh, of tribes, you know, and this idea that it's actually not a traditional Jewish idea that we're all together, we're all one, you know, there's some of that. But our primary identity is what tribe are we from? And it feels like that's a part of Judaism that has been lost to the ages and that that might actually resonate in, in, a, in a powerful way. And trying to also make the analogy to the biblical Mishkan and to say, you know, well, we had all these tribes, but the expectation was that at least occasionally they came back to this central place and, and, and there was an experience that they could all find powerful. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. That Maybe we have to find a way to provide a bunch of different kinds of powerful experiences. But nevertheless, there, there's something that, that really sort of feels to me like if you're the, if you're the, the organization in town who's really pushing a, a minion strategy, you know, how this could get, this could be enormous, right? Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think that there's a, like an aesthetic social component to it, you know, that people think of themselves as like a Mishkan person mm-hmm. and um, that that comes along with it you know, connotations of, I would say, openness, flexibility, wanting to be in a space that is intentionally diverse. Not everybody wants to be in that space, you know? Mm. And so I don't think at the end of the day, just because you create the platform for people to, you know, self-organize into lots of different groups, you know, the platform still has its own integrity. And so like people may decide, yeah, I'd like to be part of a small group, but like, the men's club at my traditional synagogue and my traditional conservative synagogue feels a lot more like me. It's so great, you know? <laughs> so I think as we get to the close, I, I, there's some thought that keeps running through my head. And actually, it started last night when I was listening to a, another podcast that you were on and you talked about it and kind of the light bulb went on in, in my head. And I realized that one thing that you and I have in common and also President Obama is that we were significantly influenced not the, not by... Not that's a big deal or anything. Y'all, y'all and President Obama, no biggie. Well, we're all from the same neighborhood in Chicago. And the other thing is that we were significantly influenced by our relationship with Rabbi Arnold Jacob Wolf, who was the of blessed memory, who was the rabbi of KAM Isaiah Israel, a synagogue, a reform synagogue in, in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago that... Uh, is where you grew up, and and I spent a lot of time with him in his later years. And um, I'm curious about your reflecting a little bit on the power of a role model like that, because it feels to me like um, it's hard to grow up and want to be a rabbi in the world, in the synagogue that's led by Arnold Jacob Wolf, and be a fearful rabbi, because he was the kind of person who who's attitude was, you know, do what's right. And I guess that I'm I'm curious about how it, it feels to me like a lot of folks have an experience 
with Judaism that kind of just isn't exciting. It's it even if it's sort of well executed, it's 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 just sort of there and it's fine. But those of us who had a chance to encounter a, a, a Judaism with that kind of power and that kind of commitment. Um, you, you can't walk away with that and, and sort of uh, when you meet your own challenges, take the easy way out or take the fearful way out. And I feel like so much of what you've done, even though I know that you don't like to think about it this way and talk about it this way, but so much of what you've done has been brave and has been not the easy road. Uh, and I just sort of wonder, I guess, how much of that you kind of you think about Arnold Jacob Wolf and perhaps other mentors that have been significant and, and whether that's an element in its in its own right that we need to and we maybe you have ideas about how we can somehow expose more Jews to that kind of experience so that they would kind of have this sense that something different is possible. First of all, as you're speaking, like I'm getting all teary eyed <laughs> um, thinking about he really was my first teacher like master teacher in the sense of feeling like a disciple, you know, somebody whose life you want to look at and learn not just from the things that they say, but how they live. My grandma who knew him long enough to like see him through, you know, multiple wives and scandals and whatever. Um, you know, she disagreed profoundly with that, but I knew him at the end of his life, you know, unapologetically um, progressive, controversial, you know, speak his mind kind of social justice warrior rabbi. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of the idea that we all were at Sinai, like all the, all the Jews, anybody who would ever come into contact with a conversation about Torah at any point in history was at Sinai. Um, and some of us were standing, you know, on the shoulders of, or sitting on the shoulders of other people. And so our vantage point of like the way that we think about Torah and the way that we think about this whole project is very influenced by you know, what we saw from the vantage point that we were sitting at or standing at. And so I feel like I very much, you know, was like a, like a kid sitting on his shoulders, you know, trying to peek up and really get a taste of the, the power of what was happening. And he was very much a person who spoke with a sense of conviction and power. And you felt like Torah was powerful. And um, that's the big critique of modern 20th century religion is it just sort of felt uninspiring and routine and kind of like boring, but you went through the motions and, and that sense of power and controversy. It's like we lost, we lost our fearlessness um, or like the fearlessness that religion is actually, for better and for worse, able to inculcate in us. I do think that he modeled that. Um, and, you know, when people have spoken about him, they say things like, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. They don't make rabbis like that anymore. And I would like to think that that, if it was true, is beginning to change. I do feel like I look around and have mentors and teachers who are unapologetically bold and risk-taking in their rabbinates. And then many people who aren't rabbis, but I think who are influencing the Jewish conversation. And the the challenge for our large institutional behemoth organizations that have carried us this far is i think to pay attention to those voices cuz like the jewish future and i'm putting air quotes around that you know people of the next generation are listening to those voices and um in moments when those voices seem like they're in conflict with mainstream institutions or ideologies that are moving much more slowly 
because that's the nature of organizations and institutions is to move slowly. We are going with the, you know, the bold, powerful, moral leaders of our generation. Now, I appreciate that you guys are giving a platform to many of them to speak. Well, it feels important to say directly that you are one of those bold and powerful leaders. So thank you so much for for doing that work on a daily basis and for calling us to to listen to the voices of others who are doing that work. And just thank you for joining us for this conversation. It's been a great one. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you will be in touch with us and we want to call out all the different ways that you can do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. Before we go, we also wanted to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Support for this episode comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.